God's goal for uh, each of his children is that we grow up spiritually and not just old physically. His desire is to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we be perfect, mature, lacking in nothing. He wants us to strive for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't want us to be conformed to this world and the low standards that this world holds as far as personal behavior and lack of personal responsibility and accountability. Growing old is inevitable, but uh, growing up is optional, and it requires our cooperation. And so as we look at what God has to say, since this is the goal of God's to grow his children into responsible, mature, uh, spiritual adults, uh, disciples who are producing disciples or making disciples, it uh, should come as no surprise that God actually has a game plan to accomplish that purpose. And if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where we're introduced to two aspects of this plan. In James chapter 1, we're going to consider two vehicles that God uses to project us forward and bring about spiritual maturity. The first we see in verses uh, 1 through 12, which has to do with the vehicle of trials or testings. The second we'll look at in verses 13 through 18 and are that of temptations. God uses both trials and temptations to cause spiritual growth in each of our lives. In James chapter 1, starting with verse 1, we read these words. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It says, And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete or mature, lacking in nothing. It says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It says, but let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures." In this passage, we learn there that the believers are in the danger of falling before the attacks and pressures of trials. That's the first part of this particular passage. As well as falling before the attractions and the pleasures of temptations. The attacks and pressures of trials. And then there are also the, the attractions and pleasures of temptations. Just as a wrong reaction, for example, to testing will obstruct spiritual growth, so will a wrong response to temptation do the same. Now, we've already covered in great detail that which had to do with testing or trials in a prior session. Now we're going to turn our attention to how we are to be growing through temptation. We're to be growing through temptation. That God uses the vehicle of temptation to bring about spiritual growth if indeed we don't respond improperly uh, to those temptations that come uh, in our path. One of the things I've tried to get across so far in the series is the uh, obvious differences between how an immature child and a responsible mature adult view similar situations. I recently came across several stories that relate to our topic and also to the differences that we find between an immature child and a responsible adult. The first has to do with a young boy who's kneeling by his bed and he's saying his prayers and he asks God to make him a good boy. The boy's father passing by his bedroom overheard his son praying, God, make me a good boy if you can. And if you can't, well, don't worry about it, because I'm having a lot of fun the way I am. 
You know, you stop and think about it. Unfortunately, you and I know way too many adults who are praying the same prayer. God, you know, I want to be used by you. I want to grow closer to you. I want to grow up spiritually. But you know what? If it's no big deal, I'm kind of enjoying just the way I am. Then there's also the story of Sally, who had been teaching her three-year-old daughter, Caitlin, the Lord's Prayer. And for several evenings at bedtime, she, re- she repeated it after her. Now, one, one night she thought it was the perfect time she was able to do it by herself. And Sally listened with pride as Caitlin carefully enunciated each word right up to the end of the prayer where she said, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us some email. Amen. <laughs> deliver us some email. Missed it just by a little bit. My favorite of the three is this one. It was a, a, royal, a, a rural or a country clergyman had to uh, make a trip into the, uh, guy lives out in the country, had to make a trip into the big city. He was a pastor, ended up parking his car in a no parking zone. He attached the following message to his windshield. He said, I have circled this block ten times. I have an appointment to keep. Please forgive us our trespasses. When he returned to his car, he found a ticket with this reply. I have circled this block for ten years. If I don't give you a ticket, I lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. I like that. No, seriously, what does God really want us to know about temptation? The passage, this particular passage, introduces us to several important truths, and we started to discuss some of them the last time we were together, and we're going to take a look as it leads us into the, the, uh, the bulk of what we're going to be looking at today. But the first thing that we saw last time is the substance of temptation. Basically, God defines for us the, the substance or the essence of temptation. What is temptation? Temptation, by definition, simply is this. The act of enticement to get us to do that which is wrong before God by promising us some type of pleasure or something of some personal gain. The enticement to get us to act in a way that's wrong before God by offering to us something that appears at first glance to be better than that which we're about to give up. And we'll look at that in great detail in a moment. But we see that that basically is the essence of temptation. It's to get us to get, do what's wrong before God. And if we do so, it'll stunt our spiritual growth and it will inhibit or break our fellowship with God. And we're going to look in great detail at this whole process of temptation. The source of temptation is very clearly told to us as far as the Bible is concerned. Notice there's a contrast of thoughts that take place here. We're to understand uh, in no uncertain terms, and we're told that contrary to popular sentiment, that God is not the source of temptation. Notice in verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, the inevitability of temptation we become aware of, that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. It is impossible, and it's, and it's important imperative that we understand that it is absolutely impossible for God to do evil, to encourage evil, or even to condone evil. It's not within his moral, pure, holy, righteous character to create man with a sin nature. In him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5 tells us. And in John 14, 30, Jesus tells us, The ruler of this world, speaking of Satan, is coming, and he has nothing in me. A very strong statement of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, we saw in great detail that Jesus Christ was tempted as we are in all things, yet he did not sin. It is impossible for God to sin because there's nothing within the character of God to receive that enticement to do that which is wrong. There is nothing there for it to, to, to grab a hold of and say, hey, doesn't this sound good? Even though as we see that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness on several occasions, he was tempted, and we'll talk why exactly it was that he was tempted, but it was to prove that he was qualified to be our Savior. He is, as the Bible says, he is sinless, he is perfect, he is holy, he is righteous, he is everything the word of God says that he is, and because of that, his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf was acceptable and pleasing to God. The temptation of Jesus was to prove that he was who he claimed to be, Jesus Christ, son of the living God who was sent by God, so God demonstrated his love, and yet while we were sinners in a rebellion toward God, that God sent us a Savior to save us from our sins. You will call him Jesus, the angel told Mary, because he will save his people from their sins. 
Jesus Christ is pure and righteous and holy, and, the, and God cannot be tempted to do evil. We need to recognize and understand the clear teaching of the Bible is that, that man cannot blame God for his sins or sin because sin entered the world through Adam as a direct result of Adam's choice. God gave man the freedom to choose. Man chose wrongly. And as a result, sin entered into the world. God did not create Adam and set him up to sin. God gave Adam the choice as we had the choice, but the problem is, is that through Adam, sin entered into the world, and because of him, that we are children, that by nature, we are children of wrath. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2. So we all enter into the world with a sin defect. We are on our way to judgment and condemnation before God because there is nothing good in any of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and on your best day, you are still imperfect and flawed compared to the holy, righteous character of God. So on your best day, you can't even get into heaven. And we need to recognize and understand that, that we are guilty before God and it should cause us to cry out to God and say, God, what, what, what must we do? You know, interesting, as the word of God was preached, for example, on Pentecost, and the Jews realized that they put Jesus Christ to death on the cross, and though they did it, all of us accept the blame and responsibility because it was for our sin that he went to the cross. But as the gospel was preached, and as they began to realize that they were responsible for the death of God's Messiah, the first thing that they said at the end of all it was, what must we do to be saved? Saved from what? Saved from the condemnation and the wrath of God. Saved from their sin because they realized they were condemned before God. The Bible says there is now no condemnation to those of us who are in Jesus Christ. Those who believe God and take Him at His word and accept the fact that Jesus died in our place. The Bible says that we become children of God. It's critical and important that we understand that in light of what we're going to discuss in the area of temptation. We need to recognize and understand something. Notice in verse 14, there's a clear contrast that takes place. The world that we live in says, it is not my fault it is God's fault. He made me this way. That's why I do the things that I do. And so I am not taking responsibility for it because I have no control over what I do. It's all God's fault. And the Word of God is very clear and contrasts that thought with this thought in verse 14. But you may think that, but it's not true. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. But as a contrast in thought, instead of blaming God and others, the Bible says take personal responsibility for the choices that you make. Wow, how refreshing is that? We need to understand this truth. Think about it in, in a practical sense. All too often we hear the question, why? Why is violence so prevalent in our society? Why is authority no longer respected? Why are sexually transmitted diseases uh, you know, at, at an ap epidemic and spreading at epidemic rates? Why are children killing children? Why is adultery and homosexuality openly promoted and accepted or seemingly accepted? And the list of questions that you have probably, I could continue to go on and on and on. Why, 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 why? And the reason and the, and the answer is very simple. It's because we as a people don't understand this truth. We do not understand the truth that God is not to blame, but it is our own choices that are to blame. We need to get back to the clear biblical teaching that each person is individually responsible and accountable to God for the choices that he or she makes. Solomon, as he looked back in his life, said, let me just summarize everything that I know in one sentence for you, nice and easy so you can grasp it and understand it. Read in Ecclesiastes 12, but the essence of it was this. The first thing that I recommend that every person does is what? Fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God, making the assumption that God exists. Fear Him. The second thing that he said was, oh, and by the way, and obey every one of His commandments, because you know what? Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, God still holds you accountable and responsible for the choices in light of the standard that He's already set. Fear God, obey His commandments, because why? Because each person individually will be accountable before God for the choices that we make in this lifetime. We went through that in great detail. For those of us who receive and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are still accountable, not for sin, but for how we lived our life after we believed in Jesus Christ, and that's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. Went into great detail in our last series with that. For those who reject Jesus Christ, 
as the substitute for their sin. They will appear before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ and give an account for the fact that they rejected him as Lord and Savior. And then they will give an account for how they lived their life because the degree of punishment in hell will be based, or the lake of fire will be based on how they lived even though they rejected Christ and their destiny had been determined because it had already been determined because we enter into the world on our way to hell and it's only Jesus Christ intercepting us that keeps us from that faith. And so we are personally accountable before God. Notice what the Bible says in verse 14. Every man is tempted or each one individually is tempted. It's a declaration of the individuality of the personality and the race of mankind. Each one of us have a different fingerprint. Each one of us have a different moral uh, nature. We have our own little idiosyncrasies or our own eccentricities. What that means basically is this. All of us have something a little different about us that's a little bit odd, a little bit strained, a leaning that we have, and many times we don't even know it. For example, one man was talking to another and said, you know, everybody has some peculiarity, you know, something different about them. The guy goes, well, I disagree with you. He says, I don't think there's anything particularly uh, peculiar about me. He said, the guy said, well, let me ask you this question. He says, do you stir your coffee with your right hand or your left hand? The guy looked at him and said, well, I stir my coffee with my right hand. The other man replied, well, that's your peculiarity. He said, why? What's so peculiar about me stirring my coffee with my right hand? He said, well, if you think about it, most people stir their coffee with a spoon. Think about it. I know it's early. It'll be really funny about noon. You're going to be in a restaurant somewhere. You're going to crack up, start laughing, and then you'll remember why. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. Every one of us, what I like to say is, every one of us have a chink in our spiritual armor. We have a chink in our spiritual armor. Each one of us, individually. I don't know what the chink in your armor is. Maybe you have a problem with lying. Maybe you have a problem with cheating, with stealing, with anger and rage. Maybe you have a problem, as we like to kind of minimize it, you have an eye for women. Maybe your problem is in the area of the realm of sex. See, the thing is, maybe, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's drinking. I don't know, but God knows. But it's very important that you know. It's, it's extremely important that each one of us knows what that tendency is in our life to cause us to stumble and fall before God on this journey towards spiritual maturity. You and I must recognize our weakness because we're only as strong as that weakest link. We need to recognize it and we need to understand it because the tendency of sin nature is to sin. We don't need to dig into all the reasons why we want to sin or all the people we can blame for why we choose to do what we want to do. Frankly to God, it does not matter if as a child you were caught between the arguments of your grandmother and mother or if you lived in some unloving home or other background experiences. We could sit and talk forever. You could go see a psychologist forever, and you could pay an extremely large amount of money until you die and never figure out all the reasons that you do what you do, if that's what you're trying to do, instead of just understanding one simple thing. we got people that will analyze you and say, did anything traumatic happen to your mother while you were in her womb? It's like as if to say that if she got caught in a rainstorm one day, that's why you're a drip. There's got to be some explanation. That's the world that we live in. You could save yourself a whole bunch of time and a whole bunch of money if you would just come to the biblically driven conclusion that you and I do what we do because we choose to do it because we are sinners and we're guilty before God. God, help me. Amen. And every now and then, they're just right. The timing of them is perfect. Oh, Tom's not here today, that's why. (laughs) If you've got your Bibles, turn with me for a biblical example of what I'm trying to get across. In the book of Genesis, chapter 4, the very beginning, we see the tendency or the process that we'll look at in a moment. 
we're given the account of a gentleman or a man whose name is Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, starting with verse 1, we have the genealogy of Cain, and we also come to an understanding of the chink in Cain's armor. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, speaking of Adam, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. That's what they did. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Notice, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain had a chink in his armor. And that chink in his armor was either either his coveting what his brother had received as praise from God. The chink in his armor was that he was jealous of his brother. He was enraged at the attention that he was given by God that somehow he thought that he wasn't getting the same. He was probably mad and angry because he was guilty before God of sin. That's why God did not accept his offering. He was angry to the point that he was enraged at what took place. That God held him personally responsible for any actions that he took. He said, if you do well, it'll be well with you. If you do not do well, then sin is crouching at your door, and the process has already began, and unless you master it, you are going to fall into sin. Up till this point, he did not sin before God, as far as his relationship with his brother was concerned. But as we all know, the story proceeds, and Cain murdered his, I mean, Cain murdered his brother. And the reason that he murdered his brother is because he did not master this temptation or enticement to do what he wanted to do, thinking there would be pleasure in eliminating his brother from further and future competition. The enticement to do wrong by the promise of the pleasure of not having to compete in his mind with his brother any longer. It's important for us to recognize that God holds us personally responsible for our actions. It's also important to recognize and never forget that as believers, we have a new nature. If any man is in Christ, old things pass away and all things become new. That while we struggle with the old desires, we are commanded to forget it and to drive on. In my life, I like to call it the Fido Principle. And what I mean by that is every time I start to think about or be, be, be captured by the past, whether good or bad, and I start to dwell on the past, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul who said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward what? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Fido, forget it, drive on. There are way too many of us, hey, you know what, and come and I'll share that with you for 200 bucks an hour, it'll take three seconds, and we'll all be happy, won't we? Because some of us want to continue to make excuses for why we continue to do what we do. We can all do that. Every one of us. We can line up here and we can have a big old pity party. And we can pass out cheese and crackers to go with all the whining that we'll hear. God says, forget it and drive on. Forget about what lies behind. Press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's our goal. To be perfect as he is perfect. To be complete and to be mature. Not to be babies and blaming everybody else and blaming our past and blaming our parents and blaming our grandparents and blaming our friends and blaming anybody we can blame other than taking personal responsibility. Is it not true of every child who gets busted doing something stupid, the first thing that they want to do is what? Blame someone else. He made me come. I didn't really want to come. He made me come. It's amazing. At 2.30 this morning, my wife's still out of town. I hear a noise outside. And this is the third time this has happened. And our house is just getting thrashed with toilet paper. 
you talk about having a hard time praising the Lord. It's like 2.30. Here we go again. I peek out the window, and all our trees are covered with toilet paper. So I wake up my son. I say, Ryan, let's go. They're still out there. I need help. And his answer was, can't you just do it by yourself? I'm really tired. <laughs> no, man. So we sneak around. He goes one way. I go the other way. Sneak through the gate. And we just scare the living life out of these people that were there. And it's a good thing there was a girl there because that's the one I caught. <laughs> man, those other guys were so fast. It was unbelievable. You ever see somebody run at 2.30 at night? I'm chasing them bare feet, man. I was like, man, I'm so glad her flip-flops fell off. And that's the only reason I caught her. And the first thing he hears, and they all took off and left her. She's like, I'll clean it all up. No, no, we're going to, who was it? Finally, after 10 minutes, they come back. Sorry. Like, you know, the first time was kind of funny. Not real funny. But the third time, it's really getting annoying. Sorry, I was, you know, it's like, just clean it up. You know, and it's amazing as we look at this that we begin to realize that, you know, I guess they had a chink in their armor that they just like to do that. The sin of TPing. But anyway, um, that's why I'm like fired up, man. I've been up since three. Where y'all been? I've been waiting for you for seven hours. Oh, okay, where are we? Okay, let's keep going. Go back to the book of James. Let's take a look at this. See, if we're going to successfully overcome temptation and continue towards spiritual maturity, we must understand what God wants us to understand. And that's the steps of temptation, or what I want to call it is the temptation process. The temptation process. Remember last time we were together, we were talking about tendencies, what our tendencies are? Well, the tendency towards sin is this. Listen very carefully. The Bible is very helpful in the matter of temptation, and we learn that sinning is never just an event. Sinning is never just an event. It is a process. It is a series of steps that set into motion to produce sin. The process always begins, according to the Word of God, with desire or lust. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. Desires in and of themselves are not wrong before God. Yes, God gives human beings, mankind, certain desires. We have the desire to eat. Without the desire to eat, we would waste away and we would die. If you've ever seen someone who is sick and they do not have an appetite and they will not replenish the, nourish, the nutrients and nourishment that their body needs, they will become sick and they will die. The God-given desire to eat is a good thing. It keeps us living. The desire can turn to something evil if that desire through our weak link or chink in our armor is to be a glutton. The sin of gluttony is taught throughout the scripture. The desire to eat is good. The sinful temptation or enticement to be a glutton is sin before God. The desire for sex is good. Without sexual desires, we would not procreate and humanity would cease to exist. It is probably the strongest argument, though there are several, but it is one of the strongest arguments as far as the sin of homosexuality is concerned. It is impossible for those who are living in that lifestyle and behavior and choosing to do so to procreate. And the desire that God had given us for sex is to do just that. Be fruitful and multiply was one of the first commands that he gave. And replenish the earth. The desire for sex is a good thing. God also gives the gift, the gift of celibacy for those who have never heard of that. There are also those who do not have sexual desires. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, really? And if that's the case, you don't have that gift. <laughs> Need to understand that. The desire for sleep 
is also a good thing to replenish and, and, and replenish the body, to recharge the battery. But if, amen, I know some of you, look, you're recharging as I speak. <laughs> you could be entering into that sin territory. But the point is this, laziness is a sin. We need to understand and recognize that these desires only become evil when you seek to satisfy them in illegitimate ways or ways that are wrong before God. Desire only becomes temptation when you allow yourself to be carried away and enticed to fulfill that desire sinfully. And God uses a wonderful word picture here, going back to verse 14. As we look at this, he takes and uses picturesque language to describe this enticement. One picture is that of hunters or fishermen luring their prey into a trap or onto the hook. My son-in-law and daughter were having a problem. They looked out in their backyard one day, and their whole yard was torn apart. Flowers were torn all over the place. It was just, it was thrashed. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. And I thought it was probably the people that are teepeeing in our house. So they're looking to try to figure it out. And then one day they figure, hey, you know what? We need to set a trap. We need to figure it out. So they get this big steel cage. It's like, you know, four feet long. It's this big. It's huge. And they sit it out in the back, and they put food at one end, and there's a door on the other end with a welcome mat. It says, enter here. And so the next morning, they look out the, the, the window, and sure enough, they caught the culprit. It was a, a huge raccoon. And what was interesting about it was, now think about this for a moment. Human beings have the ability to reason and to think. A raccoon just acts upon instinct. It sees food. It doesn't stop at that particular cage and go like this. Well, they think they're going to get me in this thing, do they? You know, it's just like, oh, duh, there's a food at the other end, and I like to eat, and there I go, and there I get caught. That's the way it works. Some of us are just as stupid as a raccoon. Uh, this is the desire that I have, and uh, that's how I could fulfill it, and uh, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, duh. See, now you couldn't get a psychologist to tell you that for 200 bucks an hour. <laughs> That's free. Wouldn't have very many people coming to me, would I? But the point is this. Animals don't go looking for traps. Fish don't go looking for hooks. Fish go looking for bait. They look for a minnow. They look for a big old fat worm. They look for whatever. I don't fish that often, but I know that's what they're looking for. They don't go looking for hooks. When we were in Georgia several years ago, I, I, my, my daughter and our son were a lot smaller then, and we were visiting some friends, and we went fishing, we went to this lake, we're sitting on this dock. And it always happens. This is the way it is. You ever get, you pick a line to go into, and it's, it doesn't matter. You play the game, you always pick the wrong line. I, I, you know, it drives me nuts. It's like, okay, I'm going to fake everybody out, and I'm going to go to this line. Longest line. I should have went to that line. Oh, too late. So that's kind of the way it is. So we're sitting at the, on this dock, and, and my son's sitting, and Ryan's going off this side, and he's fishing, and Krista's on the other side, and she's fishing, and uh, Ryan's pulling them in. Boom, boom, just pulling them in. It was, it was, they were using crickets or something, and, and they were just pulling in fish one after another. He's just pulling them in. Now Krista's sitting over here, and she's watching all this, and she's going, let me sit over there. So they, sw and anyway, he didn't want to give it up, but you know, being the gracious guy that he is and has become, he said, oh, sh certainly I'd love to share this spot with my sister. <laughs> I don't want to be selfish. So he, go, he, he comes and he goes on this side. She goes over this side. She starts fishing. He's, he's fishing over here, and he starts pulling them in. Boom, 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 boom. Now she's like crying. She's like, I said, well, well, let me see. Maybe, maybe your bait, you know, maybe your cricket died. And she, she goes, what cricket? So why anybody putting a cricket on your hook? No, I'm just throwing that nice shiny steel hook in there. I'm like, hello, hello. You know, some of us don't understand that, you know what, that's the way temptation is. It's always, it's always covered. It always hides what it's really trying to do. It covers the hook because none of us would bite into a steel shiny hook. But if the chink in the armor is such and such for you, and that's dangled in front of you, you start going, wow, the bait is dropped. There you go then that inner desire that you have is attracted to the bait. So the chink in your armor is different than the chink in my armor, but if the bait's dropped in front of you, you start to go, wow, you know. Yeah. 
And so you may not do any fishing, or, or, you know, nor would you be tempted with a juicy worm or a cricket or a minnow or whatever, but let me just change the image, just the imaging a little bit. How many of you ever get those hooks in the mail, like from MasterCard or Visa? Huh? You ever get that hook when you go shopping, the hook of, hey, you know what, you can have all this stuff now, and you can pay for it later. Wow, that's attractive. Oh, we all, we've all been kind of enticed by that. See, the interesting thing is, in advertising, agencies are paid huge amounts of money to try to find the inner desire in each one of us and find some way to attract that, to throw that bait in front of you so you take the bait and you bite in. That's what they get paid to do. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. That's how they sell products. But the reality of what I'm trying to get across is this, that each one of us have our own weaknesses or our own chink in the arm, and we've got to be very careful that that bait that's thrown in front of us does not attract us or entice us to do that which is wrong before God. It's fascinating as you think about all these advertising agencies and this whole this inner bait, and, and the, I mean the, the bait of the inner desire and all the attractions. I mean, model homes do that. Everything's an illusion. The stuff doesn't even work, but it just looks good. You go out to the pool and you go, wow, what a nice pool. But you know, there's not even a heater or a filter or anything hooked up to it. There's nothing there. It's just there so it looks good, and it entices that within you that inner desire. It says, oh, I want that. You go into any showroom, that's what it's supposed to do. When I hear people say, we're not really interested in buying, we just want to go and look. I go, really? What, why would you go look? And every time that the person says that, they come home with something nice and brand new and shiny. We really weren't looking. Oh, it's a big old cage, and at the end of the cage, it's like that's why they do that, and that's why they put all that fun stuff all right next to each other. If we can't get you here, we'll get you here. If we can't get you here, we'll get you over here. If we can't get you here, we'll get you over here. They're called outlets, <laughs> right? Ryan and I were down in Palm Springs yesterday. Met some friends, played golf in the morning, and then drove home. And, and we needed to get shoes. I couldn't wait to call my wife in Pennsylvania and said, we stopped at the outlet. We were out of the outlet in 10 minutes with three pairs of shoes because we're guys. Yeah, it was great. In, go, we're out of here. It was great. In and out. We didn't get enticed. You know why? Because I don't have any inner desire to shop. the way it is, right? What's interesting is I'm preparing this, right? I'm going through this Bible study and I get this in the mail. Oh, there's a new aloha at Maui's fabulous Grand Wailea Resort. Oh, man, we were there before. Oh, you know what? In fact, you see this right here? We were laying right on that one, that one lounge right there. This guy came walking over and just goes, are you a little hot? <laughs> yeah, right there. Look at that. Oh, and look at that golf right there. Birdie putt right there overlooking the ocean. Oh, man. Now, some of you are sitting there going, I don't like to travel. That does nothing for me. Those pictures wouldn't mean a thing to me. They mean a lot to me. (laughs) The point that I'm trying to make is, you know, one picture is worth a thousand words. And that's why advertisers are so successful. But what we need to recognize and understand that It is not wrong to have desire. Sin only occurs when we yield or take the bait. That's when sin occurs. When we yield and we take the bait and we do what is wrong before God. That's when sin occurs. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I don't know how long Satan continued to ask Adam and Eve how good that fruit looked. But it was a process. They didn't wake up one day and go, hey, let's go right for the fruit tree. It was a process, man. Doesn't that fruit look good? That looks so good, doesn't it? And it was ongoing, over and over, relentless. The process continued. And sin occurs when we yield to the bait. Or in other words, from deception we go to disobedience. It starts and it's fueled by deception. But it gives birth to a child. And the Bible says that when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, I know that you know that when you have friends who have children, and they have you come and you visit them and stuff, they go, oh, look at our baby. You know, there are times where you just kind of go, hope she hears, yeah, that's the baby. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, look at that baby. Uh, and, and, but this is one time that you can say, that is one ugly baby. This is the ugliest baby you ever want to see. 
and it's a child called sin. And it doesn't get any uglier than that. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin only happens when you act in disobedience to God's laws according to your own desire. When your will connects with your desire and you choose to fulfill that desire illegitimately, the desire leads to sin. Are you listening? This is so critical that we understand it. The Christian life is not based on feelings and emotions. It is an act of the will. It is a choice. We need to recognize that Christian living is a matter of will and not of emotions. Have you ever told your child, hey, do the dishes? And she or he said, but I don't feel like it. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's discuss our feelings towards this. Take the trash out. Well, I don't feel like it. No one asked you to give you know, me an, an explanation or an understanding of how this could psychologically scar you from life for life, asking you to do this or that. I don't care. And God doesn't care how we think this is so difficult for us. The Christian life is a matter of choice. It is an act of the will. And God holds us accountable according to the choices that we make. He doesn't say, well, what do you feel about this commandment? Can you imagine? Moses, how do you feel about three? How about six? We see jokes all the time. Lord, you know what? I think we're going to have to change that one because I don't think that one's going to go over with the people. None of them would go over with the people. Why? Because we're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. Any standard that he sets, we're going to be way below it. If it was up to us, we'd just say, hey, just let us do what we want to do when we want to do it. After all, God, that's the way you made us. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. No, you have choices to make. And I'll hold you accountable for the choices. Sin always results in tragic consequences. The purpose of the bait is to hide the consequences of the hook. It's to lure us into doing that which is wrong before God. Notice the consequences that we're talking about. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. God warned Adam and Eve if they ate of the fruit of the tree that they would surely die. Satan came along the scene and said, hey, you know what, you have an inner desire for that fruit, don't you? Let me entice you to do that which is wrong before God. He never said any of that because he knew our tendency was to to be in rebellion against God. So he said, hey, you know what, did God really mean that when he said that? To cast doubt upon the word of God? Did God really mean that when he said it? Surely you won't die. That's the craziest thing I ever heard. Think about it for a second. You eat fruit and stuff here all the time. Well, he never died yet. Why would you die just because you did that? They ate and they died. They died spiritually the moment they disobeyed God. And ultimately they would die physically because of the grace of God who would not allow us to live forever in a state of sin. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because it frees us from the corruption of this body. We are born in corruption and we will one day be born incorruptible as we are resurrected and reunited with an incorruptible body. God's great love and grace was that we would die physically so we did not live eternally separated from God. Death is God's gift to a sinful man. What a wonderful truth that is to know and to understand. Sin always results in tragic consequences. They were separated from God because of their sin. Their fellowship was broken. Think about it. It was the first time in the history of their relationship with God that when God walked in the garden, they hid from Him. Why were they in hiding? Because as they saw perfection, they saw their flaws. As they grew close to him, they realized that they couldn't stand in his presence because he was perfect and holy and righteous. And they were sinners and they were flawed before God. They knew that. They hid from him. They couldn't have fellowship with him any longer as they once did because sin entered into the world and through sin, through Adam's sin, came death. And as a result of that, we all too are born separated and sinful before God. That's why we need a Savior. That's why if the full truth of the Word of God is not taught, people don't come into a saving relationship and knowledge of God. 
because they don't know they need to be saved from their sin, because they're told that all they've got to do is add Jesus, something missing in your life, add him, try that, see how that goes. They need to know that they're separated from God, they're on the road to hell, and they need to be forgiven. That's why the gospel is so clear. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And that the only way you ever be in the presence of a holy, perfect, righteous God is that we are found in the perfection and the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Our advocate who appears before God continually saying, hey, as the accuser accuses us and tries to destroy us before God, Jesus says, but they put their faith and trust in me. What a wonderful truth that that is. In fishing terms, the results are hooked, skinned, gutted, and fried. For those of you who do not fish, maybe you can appreciate this a little more uh, clearly because this is, this is given to me when I was doing a marriage series and I really like this because the contrast is just so appealing. This is a sweetheart before marriage. Can you all see that? There's a sweet, your sweetheart before marriage, okay? This is what happens after marriage. Now for those of you who are going to be mean to me, let me just explain to you. This, oh look, this is like this was given to me actually by a woman, because as she found out who she really married, this is what happened to her disposition. So we need to recognize and understand. This is, there it is, temptation before sin. Here's what King David found out after his sin with Bathsheba. It was a process. Perfect example. He saw her bathing on the roof. He inquired about her. He sent for her. And then he committed an act of sexual immorality according to the standards of God. And you know what? And death entered after that sin was conceived. That child was conceived in sin. And God chose at that particular point to teach David a very important lesson about yielding to temptation. The child died. And it's a perfect example for us of understanding that temptation always looks good. It comes in a good package. That's the only reason it's tempting. If it came like this, you probably wouldn't be so enticed to move that direction. That's the point. We need to recognize and understand. Now, we look at God sometimes and we say, boy, you know what? God, you just don't let us have what we really want. We kind of go, oh, you know, and oh, God, you know, why can't I do it? I'm, oh, God, you know, we get a bad mouth in God, and, and, we, and we're doing it because, you know, we think that somehow or another that God doesn't want us to enjoy life. You know, just God just doesn't want us to enjoy life. So we're always awing God. Oh, God, why can't I do this? Oh, God, why can't I do that? I don't understand why I can't have everything that I want when I want it. You know, blah, blah. But the, but the reality of all of it is, and what we need to recognize and understand, that when you realize who God is, instead of saying, ah, God, we're going to be going, oh, God, how much you love us, how much you care for us. You love us so much that even when we're in rebellion against you, you demonstrated it by sending Jesus Christ to die for my sins. That's how much you love us. That's how much you love me. And who am I to question what you say is right and wrong? All I've got to do is look at the evidence and realize how true your words are. All I've got to do is look at the example after example that you give me in your word and I realize how true everything is that you say. I want to summarize this portion and then next time we get together, we're going to look at the solutions to temptation. It's one thing just to talk about, whoa, you know, we're all tempted, we're all enticed to do evil. Well, that's just the way it is. I sure hope we pass the test, you know. Hope we don't yield to temptation. It's another thing to see from the Word of God the solutions that God gives us to temptation. But I want to drum this point home as best I can. And that is, some of you have heard the story that radio personality Paul Harvey tells uh, regarding Eskimo, how an Eskimo kills a wolf. I like to pull this out every now and again as we struggle with different temptations and realize that I, I never want to forget this word picture. This is the account of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another and another and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade facing up. 
when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait and is enticed and drawn to it, he licks it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. I guess they like blood sickles. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is finally revealed. Fervorously now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not even notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His appetite craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. We must never forget this about sin or yielding to temptation. Sin will take you further than you intended to go. Sin will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And sin will always cost you more than you were willing to pay. Further than you intended to go. Longer than you wanted to stay. And it will always cost you more than you were willing to pay. If we are to grow into spiritual maturity, we have got to become men and women who learn the process of temptation so we can short-circuit it and we will not yield and enter into sin because when we are sinning before God, we are neutralized from being able to be used by God to do the things that God has called us to do in the short period of time in which he's given us. The word of God says that God's people should always redeem the time wisely. Some of us are wasting a whole bunch of time licking a knife that we shouldn't even be drawn to in the first place because we should understand the process. Father, just thank you for your word. We just thank you for the warning that we get and we look forward to next week as we look at the solutions to this problem of temptation. But for now, God, I just, wanna, I just pray that each and every one of us will never forget and understand the biblical truth that each one of us are accountable and responsible for the choices that we make. There is no one else to blame but us. We need to recognize that peculiarity, that little that, and the, that chink in our armor. We need to understand it so we do not put ourselves in harm's way. We need to recognize what that desire is that could lead to, a, to, to sin and, and a separation of fellowship with you. God, we just thank you that you love us so much that not only did you send Christ to die for us, and as we believe and trust in him, we're no longer condemned as far as sin is concerned but you've given us the presence of your spirit who lives within us and indwells us and gives us the power and the strength and, and the recollection of your word so that we can fight off and combat these temptations. We do not have to yield to sin. It's a choice that your word teaches us so clearly. God, help us to become men and women who choose right before you. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.